Hey, it's Michelle. And Brandy. And this is Spooky Shit. So this week we are going to be talking about the Bermuda Triangle. I I guess our little list of stories is going to be kind of different. So I'm saying three different stories. I'm going to talk about the Carol A. Deering. And then I am also going to talk about... Perry Cohen and Austin Stefanos. And lastly, I am going to talk about the great Isaac K. Lighthouse. Damn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sounds like a lot. Yeah. What are you going to talk about, Brandy? I'm going to talk about Flight 19 and the BSAA Star Tiger. Warning. This episode may contain graphic details. Listener discretion is advised. Is it a... Is it a ship, the second one, or is that also a plane? No, it's also a plane. Okay, nice. I was going to do a like a ship, plane, and like another one, and then I decided not to do a plane. So I'm glad that you did two planes, so it's still kind mm. of how it was supposed to be. <laughs> the Bermuda Triangle is a region in the western part of the North Atlantic Ocean and is pretty well known for being the area where numerous airplanes and ships have disappeared under mysterious circumstances. <laughs> it's not totally agreed upon exactly where the triangle is, but one article set its boundaries as Miami, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda. So I'm going to go with that. <laughs> Bermuda Triangle was first really noticed and written about as the location of unusual things happening in 1950, which I was actually like pretty surprised about. But some of the events that occurred here took place much, much earlier. For example, on October 11th, 1492, the one and only dumb bitch Christopher Columbus was on the ship Santa Maria in the area. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's like a dumb rapist motherfucker. <laughs> Uh, but him and his crew reported seeing an unknown light wall in the Bermuda Triangle area. I was like, oh, too bad I didn't just kill him. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, 1950s, that's like nothing. And then I was like, oh, okay, that's the first time people really start talking about it. Shit's been happening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the Carol A. Deering, which I'm just going to call the Deering, was a ship built in 1919 for commercial use that was designed to carry cargo. It was 255 feet long and had five masts. There was a lot of other descriptions for this ship, but I didn't know what most of them went, meant. So this is all I understood. I was like, length and how many little cloths, masts, <laughs> cloths, <laughs> killing it. On July 19, 1920, the Deering arrived in Virginia to pick up a cargo of coal headed for Rio de Janeiro. The captain was a man named William H. Merritt, and fun fact, William was actually a hero of World War I. He had been cited for bravery under fire when his ship was sunk by a German submarine in 1918, and he managed to save his entire crew. Didn't say how he saved his crew, but like, pretty sick. It also... Yeah was sunk off the coast of New Jersey, which was absolutely insane to me that, like, German submarines were in New Jersey. Because, <laughs> like, when I think New Jersey, I obviously think, like, Jersey Shore and beaches and, like, partying. Yeah. And in my mind, like, New Jersey didn't even exist during World War One. <laughs> it, it just wasn't even on my radar. But, I mean, like, I was alive during World War One. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So the rest of the Deering crew consisted of Merritt's first mate, his son, Sawal. I think it's Sawal. It's a weird name. 
and a 10-man crew that randomly was made up of all Scandinavians, mostly Danes. On August 26, 1920, the ship had left Virginia on its way to Rio when Captain Merritt became seriously ill and had to turn back to Delaware to drop him and his son off. Left without someone to captain the ship, the Deering Company recruited Captain William B. Wormel to replace Merritt. Wormel was a 66-year-old retired veteran sea captain. Charles B. McClellan was hired to be his first mate, and with two new members of the crew, the ship set sail once again on September 8th. The Deering arrived in Rio and delivered the cargo without incident. During the stop, Wormel gave the crew leave and went to meet with his old friend, Captain Goodwin, who happened to also be in Dr. Rio at the same time. According to Goodwin, Wormel basically just talked shit about his crew and said that he didn't trust any of them except for the engineer, Herbert Bates, Herbert Bates who the two both knew already. The Deering left Rio on December 2nd and stopped next in Barbados to get some supplies. While there on leave, first mate McClellan got drunk and complained to another captain in town, Hugh Norton, that he couldn't discipline the crew without Wormel getting in the way, and that he had to do all the navigating because of Wormel's bad eyesight. Captain Norton, his first mate, and another captain later heard McClellan say, I'll get the captain before we get to Norfolk, I will. Like, threatening him, I guess? So, he was then arrested in his drunken state, but he was bailed out by Wormel on January 9th, who decided to forgive him. <laughs> so, I think he was, like, actually arrested for making these threats. Yeah. I would have left him there. Or, like, bailed him out and be like, but you're not coming with us. Yeah. <laughs> the Deering then set sail for Hampton Roads, which is around, like, Virginia, North Carolina. On January 28, 1921, the Deering was seen by the Cape Lookout Lightship in North Carolina. Another fun fact, a lightship is basically a ship that acts as a lighthouse. I didn't know these existed, so I thought that was kind of cool. What's, the, what's like their purpose? Uh, just like the same reason as like lighthouses to be like shining beacons and like direct them kind of. I just realized I don't really know what lighthouses are for. I think it's to keep them away from danger. <laughs> I'm like, just like a lighthouse. And I'm like, oh my God, what are lighthouses for? <laughs> I think it's like to keep them away from bad areas, probably. Because a one I'm going to mention like soon. Sign yeah. Or to be like, what's up, bitches? And just be like, hi. <laughs> Relay my message. I don't know. <laughs> Why? I wasn't expecting you to question me on this brandy. I didn't think about it that hard. The lightship's keeper said that a tall, thin man with reddish hair and a foreign accent was hailing him through a megaphone, telling him that the ship had lost its anchors and asked if they could notify the Deering Company. The keeper wrote a note of this, but was unable to pass on the message as his radio wasn't working. He also thought it was weird that the crew seemed to be milling around on a part of the ship that usually crew wasn't allowed, and that the man who tried to get his attention was not Captain Wormel. On January 29th, another ship spotted the Deering. They noticed that they appeared to be sailing directly towards the Diamond Shoals. The Diamond Shoals are infamous underwater sandbars in North Carolina. As they are hidden and like always shifting and changing, they're thought to be responsible for up to 600 shipwrecks. The area where they're located is literally called the Graveyard of the Atlantic. If that's not <laughs> a little ominous. They didn't try and hail the ship as there was nobody on the decks and they assumed that they would soon spot two more lightships that were also on the course to stop ships from getting too close to the shoals. So at least the lightships here 
were to stop them from going to this area, but in general, I don't know what they're doing. I'm like, no idea. The Deering was not seen again until January 31st when a member of the Coast Guard spotted it hard aground on the outer, on the outer edge of the Diamond Shoals with all of its sails set. Unfortunately, the weather was pretty bad, so no rescue ships were able to reach and board it until February 4th. By then, it was being battered by the ocean for several days, and nobody had come out to the deck, so it appeared to be abandoned. Once on the ship, the steering equipment was found to be damaged, the wheel was shattered, the binnacle, I think that's how you say it, that's where like navigational instruments were placed, was messed up, and the ship's rudder was disengaged. The two distress signals were on. So whenever I was reading this, they use much more technical terms to <laughs> describe what happened. But I don't, like I said, I don't know anything about ships. So I kind of dumbed it down for my own sake. I was like, it was like messed up. It was like pretty bad. On top of this, the ship's log and navigation had disappeared, along with the crew's personal items and two lifeboats. It appeared that some of the crew had been in the process of preparing food for the next day when the ship was suddenly abandoned. And none of the crew was ever seen again. The Deering itself was not salvageable, so it was destroyed using dynamite on March 4th to prevent it from endangering other ships. On April 11, 1921, a fisher in North Carolina claimed to find a message in a bottle floating in the ocean, which he gave to authorities. Inside the bottle was a note saying, Deering captured by oil burning boat, something like Chaser, taking off everything handcuffing crew. Crew hiding all over ship, no chance to make escape. Finder, please notify headquarters Deering. The message was shown to Wormel's widow, who believed that the handwriting belonged to the ship's engineer, Bates. Also, the bottle itself was made in Brazil, and there had been sighting of a mysterious ship at the Cape Lookout Lightship not long after the Deering. So the keeper of the lightship actually tried to contact this mystery ship to ask them to send the message that they were unable to relay, but nobody responded to them, and they were unable to make out the ship's name. While these seemed to point towards hostile action directed at the Deering, some were, like, still skeptical. Many wondered that if the ship was being attacked, why would a crew member go and find a paper, pen, and bottle, write out a message, and then in the message be like, yeah, send this to the company, rather than, like, being like, yo, get the Coast Guard or the police. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Later on closer examination, handwriting experts decided that the letter was forged, and the fisher who found it admitted that he faked it in hopes that the publicity he'd gain would help him get a job at one of the shiplights. I don't know why he would get a job at one of these places because he faked a letter. That's absurd. <laughs> it's just super weird flex. What happened to the Deering still remains a mystery to this day, and there's plenty of theories as to what happened to the crew. Some more logical, some a little more unlikely. While investigation did look into the ship, it was eventually closed in 1922 with no official answer being found. One of the more plausible theories was that a hurricane caused the crew to abandon the ship. At the time of the ship being found, there had been a series of strong hurricanes going through the Atlantic Ocean, but it was noted that the ship appeared to be traveling away from these areas. Also, the state of the ship pointed more towards the crew leaving in an orderly fashion rather than like a quick and panicked evacuation. Like, if there's a hurricane, you're probably not going to stop to grab all of the personal items. But, you know, some people do some weird things. So, it's possible if they had evacuated the ship, just, like, done it poorly and been washed out to sea on the lifeboats. One really out there theory involved Russian communists. Duh. (laughs) 
So apparently during a police raid of a communist group in New York City, papers were found that called on members of the organization to seize American ships and sail them to the Soviet Union. <laughs> There's literally no proof that this is going to happen. But, like, people were really afraid of communism in Russia, so a lot of people believed it. <laughs> I guess the theory was that the Russians accidentally wrecked the ship on their way to the Soviet Union and just dipped out. I don't know. That one's just... It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Captain Wormel's widow in particular believes strongly that the Deering may have fallen victim to pirates. Around the same time, it was thought that pirates were behind several other disappearances as well. Unfortunately, there were no suspected pirates responsible for the Daring's wreck, and there's not hard evidence pointing in this direction either. I mean, no hard evidence pointing in any direction, really. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> I feel like every theory, I'm just like, but we don't know. <laughs> same with this. I know. Well, every I feel like I all the incidents in the Bermuda. Bermuda. <laughs> Bermuda. I guess that's what makes it so mysterious. If we were just like, yeah, it was pirates, everyone would be like, well, okay. <laughs> I mean, pirates are probably scary, but... A theory that I personally am more likely to believe is that there was a mutiny on board. If you don't know what a mutiny is, it's basically like a revolt to overthrow someone in power so like the crew would take over the ship. I happen to support this idea just because, like, as I said, the captain was talking shit about not liking the crew, and the first mate basically threatened him and got arrested. Also, like I said before, that lightship keeper noticed the crew just hanging out in a weird area and a random dude calling for help. Like, I don't know where the captain was supposed to be when this was happening. I feel like that's weird. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> The senator of Maine at the time also believed this and said it was a plain case of mutiny. According to one source I saw, the captain's chart may have also pointed towards a mutiny. Apparently, it showed Wormel marking it up until January 23rd, and then after this, a different person's handwriting took over. And this was just a little over a week before the ship was found, and could mean that somebody or a group of people had murdered Captain Wormel and took him over as captain. But, like, weirdly, according to what they found, that means the ship only traveled 80 miles over the course of six days, which is an extremely small amount. And I don't know what, because it could have possibly, like, caused them to take so long. It's weird. While no one from the crew was ever confirmed to be alive or seen again, there were two men who were questioned in relation to the Deering. In 1922, two men arrived in Texas from a Danish ship and were questioned by the FBI to see if they had been members of the Deering crew, which they both denied. It's also theorized that the crew of the Deering had been rescued by another ship. So, like, as I said, the distress signal were on, and it just so happens that another ship went missing around the same time, named SS Hewitt. It's possible that the Hewitt had picked up the stress signal and went to rescue the crew, but then something happened and the entirety of both crews went down. But we may never know for sure because the Hewitt has never been found. Which is even weirder. That's even a bigger mystery to me. <laughs> Russia took it. Russia took it. It's in the Soviet Union. <laughs> what if it was? <laughs> so weird. What a plan. We painted it, so we're never going to find it. Yeah. <laughs> and now the more wild theory that something paranormal happened. 
It's actually pretty interesting because this is considered like a Bermuda Triangle story when it was found hundreds of miles away just because they passed the area before. Because in case you notice, I've been talking about like North Carolina and like <laughs> that's, that's not in the Bermuda Triangle. So I don't know why. I didn't notice that till I'd already decided like, oh, I definitely want to do this. So whoops. <laughs> I consider it. Trying to find something paranormal in like my own mind. And I was thinking, like, about tension seemed to be rising among the crew and the captain while in the Triangles area. So I was like, oh, maybe it's, like, a possession. Maybe. No one else said that, but I'm putting it out there. (laughs) It's also been theorized that the man with the reddish hair the shiplight's keeper had seen calling for help was actually a ghost. And, of course, it was weird that the crew seemed to be milling around the deck. So maybe they had died in a natural or supernatural manner and we're still stuck in the boat unsure of what happened to them that kind of creeped me out a little thinking about it but that seems likely because mm-hmm. like, they were all just standing up there and they said they were milling around they weren't even like doing anything I don't know sketch oh my gosh I've picked up sketch from you now I'm saying that <laughs> <laughs> but whatever happened to Carol A. Deering it is considered one of the biggest maritime mysteries in history, and as of now, it looks like it may never be solved. <laughs> Sorry for the unsatisfying answer there. While some things that happen in the Bermuda Triangle may lead to theories of the paranormal, some are just regular old tragedies. And I thought I'd share one of these stories as well, just to make everyone sad, I guess. <laughs> Perry Cohen and Austin Stefano were two 14-year-old friends who lived in Florida. The two were keen fishers and would go fishing together in an area not too far offshore, checking with their parents every couple of hours through text messages. Austin had operated his mom's boat, an 18-foot single-engine 1978 Seacraft, around 20 times, and his family was comfortable with him using it. In mid-July of 2015, the boat was stopped by a Marine Patrol officer and found to have all safety equipment mandated by law aboard the boat. On July 23rd, Perry DM'd a friend on Instagram saying, Me and Austin are crossing to the Bahamas tomorrow. Come with us. We wouldn't check in. I don't know what the we wouldn't check in part means. I'm not a teen. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you were at one point. Yeah, but I wasn't social. I was literally agoraphobic. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Austin reportedly also spoke to another friend about going to the Bahamas, but noted that the weather was too rough. That night, Perry asked his stepdad if he could borrow his GPS to use on the boat. The stepfather said yes and advised him that it probably wasn't going to work, but if he wanted, he could try it out. The boys had to sleep over at Austin's with plans to go fishing the next morning, although a friend claims that the two were planning on going to the Bahamas. I don't know how far away the Bahamas is from Florida, but... It's not that far. Okay, it's not? It's literally like, here's Florida in the Bahamas. It's because okay. I talk about the Bahamas in my story, too. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're talking about the Bermuda Triangle. That makes sense. I'm like, what are the chances? <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, Brandy's hands were very close. <laughs> They're close, it appears. You're like, here and here. I'm like, oh, my within bad. a few inches. <laughs> Just, yeah, close. <laughs> I didn't look at a map. I should have. Whoops. The morning of July 24th, the boys headed to the the Jupiter Island Marina to go fishing. Around 11.25 a.m., Austin texted his parents to check in with them, and around the same time, they spent around $100 on gas for the boat. 
not their own money. They'd been given it by a family member, of course. They left the marina before noon. Not long after they left, thunderstorms began to move towards the area, and the National Weather Service issued a special marine warning of heavy rains and winds that could exceed 40 miles per hour. Which is fast. Yeah. You when it's 15, we noticed earlier this week it was, like, raining and windy. It was, like, I think it might have been actually, like, 11 miles per hour. And it sounds so dramatic. You could just hear the wind, like, outside of our apartment. So, yeah, like that. (laughs) So, at 40, I imagine it's insane. (laughs) Jesus Christ, that scared me. Oh, my gosh. I know. I just know that's going to scare me when I'm editing. So, thanks, Brandy. You're welcome. (laughs) It's, like... I could just, I know. You do this shit, and then I listen, and I'm like, fuck. (laughs) But maybe it'll startle everyone else, too. Not just me. (laughs) On Austin's Snapchat, he showed a picture of fishing poles on a boat with the message saying, Peace out, Jupe, which I'm assuming is in reference to Jupiter Island. But again, not a teen. A friend later said, Usually when we all say, Peace out, Jupe, we mean going to the Bahamas. Teens. I don't know what they're saying. Slang, whatever. Another friend told reporters that there was another post from Austin's account that day, which showed a video of a fast-moving storm headed towards the boat saying, we're fucked. Also, I think these may have been in, like, direct Snapchats, because, like, nowhere I looked, I saw screenshots. So I'm assuming it wasn't their stories, you know? Yeah. So this is actually really sad. The boys were never seen or heard from again. When family realized the two were apparently missing at sea, a large search began, with it being believed that they were victims of a violent storm. Unfortunately, the boat did not have emergency positioning beacon, a radio, GPS, or anything to help locate them. You know, I said before that, like, right before it had been found with all the correct things. Like, by law, I don't think that by law any of this shit was required. Damn. Or if not, that means that somebody had, like, taken them off. But I think it's just... I mean, like, have it. I'm... I have never been to Florida. Me and Brandy, right before this, were actually talking about like Disney World and how I'm scared of Florida. So this, in my mind, checks out that it's not required. <laughs> On July 26th, the boat was found near Daytona Beach, Florida, and the Coast Guard attached a data marker buoy to the boat before leaving to continue their search for Perry and Austin. The search for the two boys was called off on July 31st, 2015. Unfortunately, after it was called off and the Coast Guard went back for the boat, it had disappeared. The boat was rediscovered again on March 18th, 2016, around eight months later. And it was like 100 miles away from Bermuda. I don't understand how it got so far. Because I don't know what this data buoy is, but I thought that was like to keep track of it, right? I don't know. um, But that's weird that it just like fucking disappeared. Yeah, like, like, they couldn't even see it? it for eight months. Like, get a helicopter or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's a ghost ship now. Yeah. It's not even that, like, big. It's, well, I guess, like, 18 feet. fairly big. But still, I don't know. I don't get it. So, on the boat was an iPhone and other personal items. They also found that the ignition and battery was switched to the off position, which some legal analysts say could be an indication of foul play. I don't know if it actually was. I'm just going to put that out there now, but it was a thing that was talked about. 
So with the phone being found, Perry's parents assumed that it was going to be analyzed by the police to see if there were like fingerprints, text, anything that could help them figure out what happened. But since they were not classified as a criminal case, all the items were considered to be personal property. Therefore, written consent was needed from both families before anything could be looked at. The Coens consented and turned over Perry's cell phone, iPad, and laptop in the early days of the search, but the Stefanos would not give their consent. They preferred to have the phone examined privately by professionals, and any data they found relevant would be shared with the Coens and law enforcement. So, when Perry's mother first heard that the phone wasn't going to be turned over, she was obviously shocked, saying, All we wanted was for it to remain in a sterile environment so a proper, transparent, and neutral investigation could take place. A family member getting involved in the middle of the investigation process is not a clean investigation. On April 25th, 2016, a lawsuit was filed on her behalf requesting that the phone be kept in police custody until it had a full forensic analysis. Eventually, she did end up losing this lawsuit, and the phone was returned back to Austin's parents. A judge later ordered it to be sent to Apple for investigation, but I'm assuming nothing significant came of this because I didn't read any more about it. In 2017, the Coens filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Stefanos, alleging negligence for allowing the two boys to use an old boat to sail into the Atlantic Ocean with no emergency communication devices. Austin's father was specifically sued with allegations that he delayed rescue efforts by authorities by starting his own search instead of calling 911 when he first heard that the boys disappeared. But I kind of understand that one because I'd imagine if you hear, like, your kid's missing, you're... You don't want to assume that the worst has happened, you know? You're like, mm. oh, it's their phone probably just died or something. Like, let me just go look. But unfortunately, in this situation, it was a big deal and he should have called for help immediately. But he was not, he was later found not liable for their disappearances. Both families went on to set up foundations in honor of their missing sons. The Perry J. Cohen Foundation was created to donate to local schools and organizations. A laboratory was also named after Perry and works with students to teach art, photography, and environment. The Austin Blue Foundation holds annual fishing tournaments and helps sign the Beacon Bill into law in 2016, which helps voters with registration fees for location beacons. Both families still are looking for answers as to what exactly happened to their children. Sorry for the random fucking depressing story in the middle of this, but I read that and I was like, oh, sad. I want to talk about that. (laughs) For my final mini story, I swear this one's slightly less sad, I'm going to be talking about the Great Isaac K. Lighthouse. So about 20 miles away from the Bimini Islands in the Bahamas is a tiny, tiny island accessible only by boat named Great Isaac K. The island is most well known for its lighthouse, which was built in 1859 and stands at around 151 feet tall. Weird fun fact. The lighthouse was originally built to be an exhibit for the Great London Exposition, and it was later shipped to the island in pieces and reassembled for practical use. Hmm. Yeah. It's been claimed that there's an unusual noise that can be heard on the island during the full moons. And there's actually a legend behind this that says in the late 1800s, a ship wrecked by the island and the only survivor was a baby. It's said that the baby's grief-stricken mother, named the Grey Lady, haunts the island, wailing in sorrow during the full moon as she looks for her long-lost son. That's not the only ghost story, though. According to a local lore, a young boy was on supply ship traveling to the island during the construction of the lighthouse when the ship wrecked. He was the only one who died in the wreck when he was eaten by sharks just off the shore. Gross, 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 gross. Hopefully that's fake. 
It's said that now his spirit wanders through the island and the lighthouse, with several witnesses claiming to see him. From the time it was built, the lighthouse was always manned by lighthouse operators. On August 4th, 1969, it was discovered that the two keepers of the lighthouse had disappeared without a trace. A lot of paranormal believers speculate that this is due to, like, mysterious forces at work. But on the skeptical side, people say that records are that a hurricane passed close to the island on August 1st or 2nd, which may have been able to cause dangerous weather. Regardless, the two vanished keepers were never found, so their story remains unknown. Oh, man, I was like, oh, this one's less sad. Still two more people missing, never seen again. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I think it's just because I didn't know their names. I kind of didn't think about it, and I'm like, oh, that's also depressing. <laughs> in the 1970s the lighthouse was automated and the island was abandoned leaving the very few buildings it had to crumble into ruins it does still remain a popular place for voter for boaters to visit although the lighthouse has had its stairs removed to block anyone from getting to the interior of the tower the end yeah yep 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 so four missing people and oh god Everyone on the ship's missing. Oh my god, all my story had so many missing people in it. <laughs> Mine too. Oh, I guess this Bermuda Triangle, isn't it? Yeah. Missing people. Mysteries, bro. Yeah, I guess people aren't going to be like, found you in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so I'm going to talk about Flight 19. So Flight 19... 19 wasn't the first unexplained occurrence, as you know, Michelle just told some of that So it wasn't the first unexplained occurrence in the area of the Bermuda Triangle, but many say that what happened sparked the legend of the Bermuda Triangle. Oh, okay. So Flight 19 was a group of five General Motor aircraft. They were made by General Motors. I can't oh, say. that's still a thing, isn't it? General Motors. I, yeah. Do you hear how I also slowed down at the end? I was like, General Motors. <laughs> it is. It's weirdly. his feet up at the end. Yes. <laughs> yes, but they were basically these five Avenger torpedo bombers. Claims. Jesus Christ. It was a Navy or a military plane. Yeah. No, just, I don't know if it was, it was Navy. a Navy. <laughs> no, I mean, it was just a military planes. Obviously, okay. you know, they're bombers. But these five <laughs> planes bombers. were... They're bombers. If it's military on, it must be a bomber. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean... That's literally how it sounded. You're like, well, they're military on. Well, duh, they're bombers. <laughs> <laughs> Who else would bomb people? <laughs> That's our thing. It really is, though. It really is, unfortunately. But anyways, these five planes were actually going to do a routine navigation and combat training exercise. Okay. The exercise was called Navigation Problem Number One, which was a combo of bombing and navigation, which other flights had completed or were scheduled to undertake that day. Okay. The flight leader was United States Navy Lieutenant Charles Carroll Taylor. He had about 2,500 2, flying hours, 
and his trainee pilots had about 300 each so he was fairly experienced yeah pretty experienced fuck <laughs> and then now i'll talk about the other so his plane name was ft28 or like that was his code name for the plane okay ft28 it's just a bunch of letters and numbers very so he was in ft28 and then he had a, two crew members george delvin and walter r parpart Par parts, par parts. I like that name. <laughs> what? Wait, did I misunderstand what you said? What do what do what you what you ask? Say your sentence again. I don't want to feel stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I just said somebody's name. Okay, no, I thought you said somebody's name. I thought oh, I said okay. I like their name, and you said what? And I was like, in my head, I was like. Was a name, I <laughs> and I didn't want to sound dumb, so I was like, "Say it again." <laughs> no. I'll just. Keep well, that was one plane. <laughs> Having another so plane. <laughs> another plane was FT thirty six. The pilot was EJ Powers. The crew members were Howell O. Thompson and George P. Ponessa. The next plane was FT three. The pilot was Joseph T. Bosey. Crew members were Herman A. Thielander and Bert E. Baluk. So interesting names. Okay. Yeah, really all over here. Uh, the fourth plane was FT-117. The pilot was George W. Stivers. Crew members were Robert P. Grubel and Robert F. Gallivan. And the last plane was FT-81. The pilot was Forrest J. Gerber. And the crew member was William E. Lightfoot. How many people is this total? Oh, sorry. You're still talking. Oh. (laughs) It's 13 people. Okay. Whenever you list out their full name, like, it sounds like more, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, they each have, like, three names, too. They do. They have, like, full names. (laughs) But yeah, there was actually supposed to be 14 people. That last plane only had one crew member. And apparently it was Corporal Alan Cosner. Um, and I guess he had, quote, had to be squeezed. Exque- <laughs> <laughs> quote, had to be excused from the exercise. Why? What'd he do? I don't know. I thought that was like okay. sus. Yeah, he set the rest of them up for death. Yeah, sus. <laughs> he is Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> yeah, I know he's not. <laughs> but yeah, there was uh, 13 people total. Okay, that's a very unlucky number. Is it? Yes. <laughs> mm, and I, I'm just going to say this. I don't know shit about planes. Hey, you sound like me and my boats. But um, I'm not include these for if, if there's anybody that knows about aircraft. There's gotta be at but least one. The aircraft included four TBM-1Cs and one TBM-3. I know exactly what that means. <laughs> <laughs> that literally just sound like you made up sounds. <laughs> Well, each plane was fully fueled, and during pre-flight checks, 
It was discovered that all the mi- all were missing clocks. They were missing their clocks? Yeah. Why? I don't know. I thought that was weird. That's so um, weird. That's even weirder than the like... guy being excused. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's weird, huh? Yeah. Well, I guess a person take like you know you. I feel like they do like a checklist type thing. Mm-hmm. I guess they thought it was weird too, but they were like, uh, they weren't concerned about it because they literally were like, ah, oh, nah, like they should have their own watch, basically. Oh yeah, does the. I mean, you might get to it, so don't tell me if you do. But does the do the clocks even make a difference, or is it just weird? Just say I'll I don't think it makes it a difference, but okay. <laughs> it was concerning because navigation of the route was intended to teach dead reckoning principles, which involved calculating and like elapsed time. Oh, so they were like working on their time, kind of. Yeah, the time. Okay, well, that's like, super weird that it was missing. Very. Hmm. Huh. Sus. So on December 5th, 1945, the squadron was scheduled to leave Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale in Florida. Hey, Florida! <laughs> so they were scheduled to leave at 13.45, which is 2.45 in the morning. 13.45? I thought that was 1.45 in the afternoon. Is it? <laughs> is it 1? Oh, it is 1. In the afternoon, uh, Brandy. <laughs> wait, no. Yeah, it was one in the afternoon. <laughs> Two in the morning. <laughs> That's way You're out. just making this no, up No, it's because my up. one, I wrote a one, but it looks like a two. You can't read your handwriting? No. It sounds like you're just making up a story now. <laughs> <laughs> and when you were saying their nicknames, you're like, F254. <laughs> That's yeah. funny. Well, anyways, they ended up leaving late because the flight leader, Taylor, showed up late. What a bitch. <laughs> I I feel bad for thinking this, but I was like, it's probably why they went missing. If they would have left earlier, maybe they didn't. I'm assuming they go missing. I don't actually know what happens. You'll see. It's all Taylor's fault. Oh, no, I feel so... bad now. Never mind. I take it back. <laughs> The weather was described as favorable, sea state, moderate to rough. That's weather. <laughs> what a way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the exercise involved three different legs. Basically, they had to do a triangle, which I thought was like... Oh! But... Your triangle was like... <laughs> 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 gotcha. They said, you can't... No. No triangles at all. <laughs> So first was they had to take off and head east until they reach Hen and Chicken Shoals, where they would do a low bombing practice. Jesus Christ, that is insane. Just I love the way you said it, Jibrain. Just a little bombing practice. Well, that's what they said. Just a light day of bombing Just practice. Light bombing. <laughs> um, second, they would head another 77 miles east before changing course to head north. Flying over the Bahamas. And lastly, after flying over the islands, they had to do almost like a... A Like a U-turn. Oh, okay. And head back to base. Okay, so they literally win like the entirety of the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. Radio conversations between the pilots were overheard by base and other aircraft in the area. 
The practice bombing operation is known to have been carried out because at about 15... 1500? Is that how you say Three o'clock. Yeah. Three o'clock. Thank you. You can translate the time. Yeah, I only know this because whenever I worked retail, their clocks on their registers were military time for whatever reason. I don't know why, but I got very used to it. (laughs) I can't get used to it. Well, I've never really tried, to be honest. It's easy once you work in retail for three years. Yeah. And... Robert's watches are always military time because he's fancy. I don't know. I don't know why he does that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they know the bomb. They like did the bombing exercise because a pilot had requested and was given permission to drop his last bomb. <laughs> that sounds funny. <laughs> drop a bomb. Okay. So he's just shitting himself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, 40 minutes later on base, another flight instructor, Lieutenant Robert F. Cox, was forming up with his group of students for the same mission when he received an unidentified transmission. What is an unidentified transmission? I don't know. Does that mean like they don't know what they're saying or they don't know where it's coming from? I, I, th- I think they don't know where it's coming from or like they don't know who it is. Because they didn't identify themselves. Spooky. (laughs) So an unidentified crew member asked Powers. Powers was one of the pilots. Okay. For his compass reading. And Powers replied, I don't know where we are. We must have gotten lost after that last turn. Oh. That's when Lieutenant Cox back on base transmitted. This is FT's. 74 please identify yourself so someone can help you so f f t whatever that was like Mm -hmm. the guy back on base that was like his code okay a few moments later others were requesting suggestions on like help like what they should do basically they were just like like, butting in (laughs) my brain isn't working (laughs) FT-74 tried again, and then a man identified as FT-28, which was Taylor, the flight leader, okay, came on. FT-28, this is FT-74, what is your trouble? Both of my compasses are out, he replied, mm-hmm. and I am trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I am overland, but it's broken. I'm sure I am in Keys, but don't know how far down. And I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. Fuck. F- <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> Ray. FT-74 inf- informed the Naval Air Station that the aircraft was lost, and then he advised Taylor to put the sun on his port wing and fly north up the coast to Fort Lauderdale. And I'm guessing, I don't know the port side or, you know, I don't know Just those some terms. way of kind of getting direction. Yeah. Okay. But I don't know. God, that is not where you want to be literally in the sky and be like, I don't know where anything is. I'm like, right? Well, shit. Especially, like, if you run out of gas and shit. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> the only way I'd be there, I was like, can I have my own parachute to like jump if I need to? <laughs> <laughs> 
So base operations were able to contact them and asked if their aircraft was equipped with a standard YG, which is a IFF transmitter, which is stands for identification friend or foe, and is basically a radar-based identification system designed for command and control. So just like kind of help locate them, it sounds like? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> It took FT-28 a while to respond, but he did indicate that his transmitter was activated. Okay. At 1625... 425. FT... I like how I paused. I I was ready. I've been waiting for this. (laughs) Finally, the only thing I know how to do, I can show. (laughs) FT-28 radioed. We're heading... 030 degrees for 45 minutes, then we will fly north to make sure we are not over the Gulf of Mexico. During this time, no bearings could be made on the flight and the IFF could not be picked up. So they told him to switch his frequency to 4805 kilohertz. Is that how you call them? That sounds right. I I also don't know. (laughs) Khertz. Yeah, let's go with Khertz. Um, but like, apparently he didn't acknowledge it, and so they like requested, they asked him again, but this time to switch to 3000 kHz, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, is the frequency for search and rescue. Oh, fuck. I don't even know what these frequencies and all this shit means. I'm imagining so. it's kind of like, did you ever have walkie-talkies and, you know, you like switch them? Oh. And you could hear certain people. I'm kind of imagining like switching stations almost, and like certain people have access to other ones. Okay. In my head. Taylor replied, I cannot switch frequencies. I must keep my planes intact. What? Why couldn't he switch it without keeping his planes intact? I don't know. I think maybe because he wanted to be able to contact, or like... Oh, to keep in contact with the base, maybe? Yeah, with the... Or no, with um, the other planes. Oh, yeah, like what they ran into each other like that? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm never gonna. Oh, I was gonna say I'm never gonna fly, but I might fly again. I'll have to. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> so at sixteen fifty six, four fifty six. It took me a second. <laughs> I got too loud there too. You could see that the audio got weirdly loud. Oh yeah, really, really excitable. <laughs> They asked Taylor to turn on his transmitter. He did not acknowledge, but a few minutes later advised his flight change course to 090 degrees due east. For 10 minutes, about the same time, someone in the flight said, Damn it, if we could just fly west, we could we would get home. Head west, damn it. So that was like one of the crew members was basically like... Knows that they had to go west, but the flight leader was like, "No." It also sounds like nobody even like had functioning navigation to tell them where west was. Yeah, (laughs) they literally all of them like lost their like their compasses weren't working. Oh my god! And they're like for ten minutes. It's like, bro, none of them have a clock either. (laughs) This is the worst. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like the difference of opinions later led to questions like. If the students did, like, think to go west, why didn't they? Because if if everything had been fine and they didn't listen to their commander, they probably would have been in big trouble. 
Yeah, that's exactly like what people argue. Like it was that military discipline, like stupid. Shit. Shouldn't discipline people for doing stuff that will uh, save their own lives because that I'm assuming. Right? Because what if they would have gone and they would have survived and then? Yep. Yep. Oh, that is really depressing to think about. That they were probably scared of getting in trouble, so they didn't do it. Yeah. And they literally lost their lives. Jesus Christ. Sometimes I get anxiety about making small decisions because I'm afraid it will like lead to my death. Like Robert would be like, "Oh, do you want to go to the store now or tomorrow?" And I like. We'll feel too much pressure. I'm like, I can't choose because what if we go today and like we get hit by a car and we die and then it's all my fault because I wanted to go today. <laughs> I think about stuff like this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to take a dark turn. <laughs> it's already dark. It's okay. That's true. Yeah, we're talking about death. So as the weather deteriorated, radio radio contact became intermittent, and it was believed that the five aircraft were more than 230 miles out east of Florida. We're, That's pretty far. Oh my gosh. They were just like over the ocean? Yeah. I don't wait, I'm like east of Florida. And remember I'm not good at geography. <laughs> I don't think that there's much there. Taylor radioed will fly two hundred and seventy degrees west until landfall or running out of gas. And requested a weather check. Oh my god. This is a nightmare scenario. He requested uh, the check at seventeen twenty four. 524. By 1750. 550. <laughs> several land-based radio stations had triangulated flights 19. So oh. they had like found them basically. Okay. And saw that they were north of the Bahamas and well off the coast of central Florida. Yikes. So they were like basically heading they were parallel to Florida. And they okay. were just going up. Right. You, need to, you need to turn, man. <laughs> yeah. They didn't turn. Or they <sighs> thought they turned, but they didn't. Yeah, how are you supposed to know your direction if you're above the ocean flying? <laughs> like, Right? Everything's going to look the same. But I guess these like land-based radio stations, like people, they never like transmitted that information to like the base or none of that. Why? I don't know. That seems dumb. Very. Um, at 1804. 604. Taylor radioed to his flight, holding 270. We didn't fly far enough east. We may as well just turn around and fly east again. By that time, the weather had deteriorated even more uh... and the sun had set. It's just <gasps> getting dark and it's like scary. Oh my god, how are you going to be able to see anything? I don't know. You're not. Around 1820. 620. Taylor's last message was received. He was heard saying, all planes close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. Brandy. <laughs> what the fuck? Sorry. Like, they're all going to die together? That's really sad. Oh my gosh. And the other one's like, we told you to go west, you dumb bitch. <laughs> That's what I'd be saying. I'd be pissed. Back on base, a consolidated PBY Catalina. Another plane, basically. It's a, it's like 
hybrid. It's a they call it a flying boat. <laughs> That's funny. But that what's it called? The Catalina, deported after eighteen. Six. So six. Mm -hmm. Oh, see, you're catching on now. Look at you go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I left to go like search for Flight Nineteen, and if they found them, like guide them back to land. Yeah. You could have done this earlier. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so they also so they sent that boat and then there was also like two other flying boats that were like doing something like they were doing some kind of training and okay. instead of having them like come land they had them go help too. Oh, wow. So the US Navy Squadron training number 49 PBM5 took off at 19 27. 727. From Naval Air Station Banana River. <laughs> <laughs> Banana River. <laughs> I like that name. So yeah, it took off, went to go help or try to help. It called in a routine radio message at 1930. And was never heard from again. The aircraft had a crew of 13 people. So that brings the total of missing people to 27. Wait, the searchers were never heard from again? Yes. Bro, what? <laughs> Ooh, crazy, right? Yes. I'm just... I was... Because I was just about to make a passive-aggressive comment like, oh, this pe these people couldn't have left earlier, but they also went missing. And I'm like, oh my <laughs> god, I can't criticize them. <laughs> no. So oh, the shit. Navy ended up launching an investigation that ended up being 500 pages long. Oh my god. And here are some key observations. Yes. Um, the first is that they don't blame flight leader Taylor for, like, <laughs> they don't blame him. <laughs> Everyone else in those planes did. But basically, I mean, it kind I think it's kind of his fault, but then it's not because, like, his equipment wasn't working. But True. basically, they believe that when he thought he was over, like, keys... Mm -hmm. Which is like a little area in Florida, little, right? It's this is like a little group of islands, but it's more towards like the bottom of Florida. Mm, okay, and um, the Bahamas is more to like the right of Florida. Okay, I just knew I've just heard Florida Keys on TV shows. I actually don't know anything about them. Yeah, me either. I just know <laughs> like there's small islands near yeah. Florida. Okay. But I know it's more towards the bottom, and that's why he was, like, scared to hit the Gulf of Mexico. So oh. they, like, turned around or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, that was basically, they just didn't blame him. They said it wasn't his fault because his compass stopped working and just, I mean, it's pretty hard to nav navigate if you don't have, like, your compass, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, like, what do you, because, like, I mean, maybe on the sun setting, that's more helpful, but by then you're like, all right, well, where am I? <laughs> Yeah, it's fucking dark as shit. Yeah. And I guess he probably did feel like a lot of responsibility to get all these other people back. So now I kind of feel bad for being critical. He probably felt <laughs> extremely guilty in those moments. Probably. Whew. But the rescue flying boat was, they say it was due to a, an explosion midair. Like, How? What? Right? It doesn't make sense because then they still don't find any fragments or like survivors or yeah, anything. Yeah, you would find fragments of a huge explosion, wouldn't you? I assume so. And also, how did it just explode? I mean, 
I'm not a plane person. I'm not a boat plane person. But <laughs> I'm like, what? I mean, I don't get it either. That is weird. Doesn't make sense. I guess there's a reason this is considered a Bermuda Triangle mystery. <laughs> and we've just hit it. <laughs> yeah. So the report was subsequently amended to cause unknown. What was the cause um, before? I don't know. Probably just maybe just under investigation or something. Yeah, I think so. Okay. But apparently they like changed it to that because Taylor's mom was like basically blaming the Navy for his death. Whoa. Because the planes were in good condition? Yeah. Damn. Okay, you know, that's probably a better person to blame than Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry for past me's behavior. I was being me. (laughs) But yeah, basically, like, they kind of did, like, a little reconstruction. And what they think happened is when he was flying over the Bahamas, he mistaked, like, some little islands that were near the Bahamas as for the Keys. But really, like, it was, I think they're called... Hold on, I have the name here. It's some really... The Abaco Islands. Oh, I think I read something about those in one of my stories. Yeah, the Abaco Islands. And I guess they look very similar to the Key Islands. Oh, man. Fuck. But, yeah, so they think that he, like, passed over those and mistaked it for the Keys and just kept going what he thought was east, but really was just north. Oh, my god. And two more, just basically open water open ocean oh man that's scary and were any of those planes ever found Mm-mm. how many of them were there weren't there like five yep bro so six ships total where the fuck did they go <laughs> i, don't I know, hate the I ocean don't know. why is it so vast <laughs> hate that shit nothing ever gets found in it that was real does it oh. it's um, yeah, they never found anything. Almost 50 years later, in 1991, a treasure hunting expedition led by Graham Hawks announced that the wreckage of the five Avenger planes had been discovered off the coast of Florida, but the tail number revealed that they were not from the Flight 19. My god, so there was f- like five other planes just found? right dude i hate this i hate the ocean it's terrifying in 2004 a bbc documentary showed graham returning in a new submarine 12 years later identifying one of the planes by its like bureau number like the tail number it has okay they identified it as 23990 but it was not from flight 19. It was from another flight lost. Another oh plane that got god. lost. Oh my god. At sea on From October. another Bermuda Triangle story we haven't said. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was another flight that got lost on October 9th, 1943. Which was just two years earlier. Whoa, so that was also there for like a really long time. Mm-hmm. Jesus. The, the only difference was like. The people from this flight did survive. They survived? Yeah. How did they survive? I don't know. So, oh, I hate to ask this because it has dark consequences to this question. So whenever you land and hit the water, do you potentially not die on impact? I... Because that means... Oh, 
had worse deaths than I imagined. Yeah, I think it's possible. Brandy, why are you going to Florida? <laughs> Do you need to see Disney World that badly this year? <laughs> I swear to God. I'm going to come back in September and be like, so I have a really personal Bermuda Triangle story to tell everyone. <laughs> Oh my god, don't. And this will be our final episode. <laughs> That's scary. Oh, I I uh, might be going to Hawaii too after I get vaccinated, so I'm like kind of freaking out right now <laughs> listening to these stories. Oh, Hawaii's not in the Bermuda Triangle though. Bro, it's over the ocean and apparently I'd never be found. <laughs> this is terrifying. That's true. <laughs> Why did you talk about plane crashes? Do you, do you have another plane crash story or was it just those yeah. two? Motherfucker. I'm sorry, continue your story, but just know I'm freaking out over here. <laughs> so yeah, in the film, I guess he was unable to identify any other planes. He stated, Despite the odds, they are just a random collection of accidents that came to rest in the same place 12 miles from home. That is so weird. <laughs> Fucking Florida death trap in 2012 graham apparently reported that him and the pentagon like it <laughs> it so suited random. both him and the pentagon to make the story go away because it was an expensive and time-consuming distraction i was oh like gosh. what that's Does also that me that's very insensitive to refer to people who are missing and probably dead as a distraction <laughs> yeah i don't know Dang. i was tripping yeah that's really weird but records showed that training accidents between 1942 and 1945 so over a three-year span counted for the loss of 95 aviation personnel bro were were planes just made that year why was everyone dying i don't know bro <laughs> oh my god in 1992, another expedition located scattered debris on the ocean floor, but nothing could be identified. Oh, so I'm like, maybe that could be the other boat, uh, plane, the flying the plane boat. Plane boat, whatever the fuck it was, the flying boat. <laughs> the wine boat. In 2000s, researchers, or not researchers, searchers, <laughs> searchers expanded the search area farther east into the Atlantic Ocean. But the remains of Flight 19 have still not been found. I hate that. I hate anything. That's so sad. Like, you don't know. We don't know nothing. How do you not find stuff in the ocean? Why is it so deep? Why is it so large? I hate it. <laughs> I'm afraid if I say I hate it, it's going to kill me. I don't hate it. I'm just, I fear it. <laughs> A 2015 newspaper report claimed a wrecked warplane with two bodies inside were Retrieved by the Navy in the mid-1960 near Sebastian, Florida. How was this, like, just heard about? Right? What? Recently. Like, 50 so years So, the Navy later? initially said it was from Flight 19, but later recanted the statement. So, another one? Yeah. Oh, I'm losing my mind. How many and people? apparently, they never have released, like, the names or anything, the identity. That's really fucking weird. They say they say they don't know because it's they don't have enough evidence to identify the bodies. That's sketch. That's so sketch. So, so they have sketch. like dental records back then or something? I don't fucking know. 
Mm. I feel like there's probably some way to find out. But yeah, the six aircraft and the 27 crew members have yet to be found. Are they in the ocean? Are they alive? Are they dead? Bro, if they were alive, I'd be tripping right now. <laughs> I, I hope know. that they are, and it'll make me less afraid. <laughs> I hope that they're just hanging out in the Bahamas. <laughs> I hope that they're, they're living life. They're just having fun. They just hated the army. <laughs> Maybe. All right. So that's the story about Flight 19. Oh my god. I now that fucked me up. <laughs> the fact that you're like, oh, these people went looking for them and also disappeared. Yeah, that's, that one tripped me out. That's why I talked about it. I was like, no way, bro. And then whenever you were saying how like they recreated it, I swear to God, I thought you were going to be like, and these people went missing too. <laughs> that would be like, even more crazy. I'm I'd be like, yeah, it. just don't fly there. <laughs> just stop. Close the whole army base down. So now I'm going to talk about the BSAA Star Tiger. Okay. So like BSAA them. stands for British South American Airways. Oh. English. Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> So the Star Tiger disappeared without a trace over the Atlantic Ocean while on a flight between Santa Maria in the Azores and Bermuda. Okay. In the early morning of January 30th, 1948. Awesome. Okay, older. That's good. I'm <laughs> In my mind, I'm like, the planes have improved. I'm not going to die. It's fine. Um, a year later, in 1949, BSA Dart Ariel also disappeared. What? Sus, right? Brandy, this is like another one. Why? What? Are these like cursed planes? I don't know. We'll get there. Dude. So, Star Tiger was one of three enlarged and improved versions of the Avro Tudor. I don't know what kind of plane that was or what. You guys know what that means. <laughs> but I guess it made 11 transatlantic flights. Wow. Yeah, and it had a total of 575 hours of flying. That's like decent, I imagine. As someone who doesn't fly, I imagine that's a decent. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it sounds like a lot. It's more than an hour, so it's quite a flex. <laughs> <laughs> so, on the morning of January 28th, 1948, the crew and passengers boarded the Star Tiger at Lipson, only to be forced to get off when the pilot, Captain Brian W. McMillan, told them the port inner engine needed attention. Okay. Um, so the aircraft ended up taking off two and a half hours later and made a 75-minute refueling stop at Santa Maria in the Azores, um, where okay. it was supposed to be 75 minutes. But the reported weather was so poor that Captain McMillan decided they should stop or stay until the next day, basically. Oh, my God, I thought it was going to sound like depressing. Um, so yeah, the next day, January 29th, the Star Tiger took flight to the Bermuda despite the strong winds. Oh my gosh. Kinda lucky for them, I guess, was another plane had took off an hour before them. Mm -hmm. 
And I guess they agreed to basically, like, radio each other and be like, tell them the weather conditions, basically, the whole time. If it's safe or not. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, the other plane that left before him was um, Avro Lancastrion. Fancy. <laughs> yeah. So the Star Tiger took off at 1534. 3.34. And soon after takeoff was lashed by heavy rain and strong winds. Oh my god. I like the word lashed, though, to describe rain hitting a plane. I'm imagining like, <laughs> super intense in my head right now. <laughs> Um, they say at first the first plane, the Lancastrian, was two hundred miles ahead, but slowly the Star Tiger like kind of closed the distance. Okay. By one twenty six, after ten hours in the air, the Star Tiger closed the distance down to one hundred and fifty miles, which I mean I think is pretty close considering how fast the planes are and shit. Yeah, but I don't know. So winds were really bad that the Lancaster Castian navigator had realized that they were in a fixed position and the winds had blown them 60 miles off track. Jesus Christ. So yeah, they basically just did a new route and decided to go to Newf- Newfoundland, which okay. is just a little like island so they could like refuel and get their bearings. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the Star Tiger, unfortunately, had passed its point of no alternatives. It had to stay on course to Bermuda. Oh, no. At 3.04, radio officer Robert Tuck, aboard the Star Tiger, requested a radio bearing from Bermuda. But the signal was not strong enough to obtain an accurate reading. So they're basically trying to figure out exactly where they were or how far Mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. He apparently tried again 11 minutes later and was successful. The Bermuda radio operator was able to obtain a bearing of 72 degrees and transmitted the information. Tuck acknowledged and that was the last form of communication anyone had with the aircraft. Oh my gosh. And that was at 317. Around 3.50, the Bermuda operator attempted to contact Star Tiger with no luck. Tried again at 4.05, nothing. And one last time at 4.40, and when he still didn't hear anything, he declared a state of emergency. Hmm. But yeah, there was like, they didn't hear nothing, like, no, not a peep. They didn't was, even no say like a mayday any or anything. Signals. Yeah. Huh? I, I was saying they didn't have, like, a mayday or anything, and you said distress yeah, no. signals, which is the correct way to say it. <laughs> yeah, no one heard anything, and, like, they said that a lot of people were actually on the same, like, frequency, so they would have heard it. Yeah. But they didn't hear a peep. What the fuck? Sketch. Very. So immediately, the, um, the Air Force organized a rescue effort despite worsening weather. Scary. They found no sign of the Star Tiger or any of the 31 passengers and crew that were on board. Jesus. But yeah, that's basically it. Um, Oh, God, never seen or heard from again. Yeah, like dead ass. 31 people. A whole ass plane. Gone. Oh my God. Poof. Poof. We've talked about a lot of missing people in this episode. Yeah, I did. Holy shit. 
Um, I'm not sure like how these theories started, but apparently there's theories out there that both the Star Tiger and the Star Ariel had been sabotaged. Oh. Like So I'm like, but where are they though? Yeah. I know, they would have been found. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess not because they weren't. Yeah, another theory is just that they like were not a gas and then that led to their disappearance because they probably crashed into the ocean. Jeez. That's so but yeah, sad. That's my uh, story of all the Bermuda Triangle disappearances. I thought I had a you lot know, of disappearances. It was crazy so many more. Yeah, because we briefly mentioned other ones in our stories and we're like, oh my god, that's more people. I know. <laughs> that's terrifying. Well, anything else before we go? Stay out of the triangle. Did Please. you know it's actually called... They actually call it the Devil's Triangle, too. Okay, why are people <laughs> even going over this No, I'm serious. That's terrifying. It's like another name for it, the Devil's oh Triangle. Oh god. Yeah, it's a death trap. If you want to go to the Bahamas, like, go around the triangle. <laughs> <laughs> Just take the long way. The scenic route. Well... Yeah, if you guys want to email us any of your Bermuda Triangle stories, if you have one that's terrifying, our email is thespookyshit.pod at gmail.com. Our website is spookyshit-pod.com, and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spookyshit underscore pod. And thank you for listening to this extremely, surprisingly depressing episode. I don't know what I was expecting, because usually like paranormal (laughs) weeks, like they're, well, technically they always kind of include death if there's ghosts. But wow, yeah, we're just depressing. We're just a depressing podcast. Well, okay, then, thank you for listening to our (laughs) depressing podcast. And we will talk to you all next week. Goodbye. Bye.